Lord, I pray that my words will not be in words of human wisdom or power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that our faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The text that we're read today is centered around a theme that you may not have noticed. It kind of slips in there and doesn't necessarily jump off the page. But in three of the four uh, texts, there is a reference to good works or to fruitfulness, or in the case of Isaiah 5, the lack of fruitfulness in the nation of Israel that led to their exile in Babylon. Good works, many of which the rich young ruler, by the way, said he had done, but the last most important good work or action he turned away from. We'll come back later to that. Uh, years ago, the Lord caught my attention really deeply in my heart with a particular uh, passage that I've never gotten over, Ephesians 2.10. Now, that was not read today, and I'll explain why, but Ephesians 2.10 says, You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I first preached that sermon just after we received this from Sally's grandmother. We call her grandma. This is a tablecloth. Okay, and it is cruel work. C-R-E-W-E-L, cruel work. And when we got it, it just really got my attention because it astonished me that she sat for untold hours weaving together these little medallions, which you probably can't see, of cotton thread, knotting them together, every single piece, and then taking all those medallions and knotting them together to make a seamless whole. Now, I'm going to give it to Teresa so I don't do anything bad with it, okay? <laughs> don't tell Sally about it, okay? <laughs> you can look at it later. <laughs> but cruel work, again, just remembering what was going on, this, this kind of got my attention, Ephesians 2.10, you were God's handiwork, and this is handiwork. And the time and the detail is amazing. Or think about any other kind of handiwork that you can think of. Think about wood carving. Maybe you love wood carving. You love to see wood carving. Or painting. You see painting. Or maybe uh, Rachmaninoff's third concerto. You know what I mean? Where your fingers are playing an incredible piece. And the text tells us you are God's handiwork. You are a living, growing work of art and goodness, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, to make a difference for good in the world. And when I say good, I mean good is defined by the author of good and the source of all good. Hebrews chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 1 says that every good thing comes from the Father in heaven, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So he defines what's good, he is good. And he says, I want you to do good. And it's not for your glory, not for our glory, not as wonderful as people may think of our painting or our piano or our skills of magic in the classroom, but for the sake of others. So that they literally might be benefited and blessed by the goodness of God passing through you. So if you look at that and you see that, Christ, that the Lord indicted Israel for its failure to do good works, and where Titus is instructed by Paul to teach people to do good works, or when Paul says we are created for good works, we can conclude that clearly good works 
Fruitfulness for the sake of others is important to God. It is good to do good in the world as the people of God. In fact, it's a core calling of disciples of Christ. Today is a day of discipleship, remember? So you know where I'm headed. Now I chose the Titus passage over Ephesians 2 for the New Testament reading because of the larger message about good works in this little book. I doubt many of you have a real Bible, but if you've got I mean, an actual physical Bible, but if you do turn to, pay, to Titus, it'll go it'll cover just a page and a third of your Bible in most Bibles. You can lay it out flat. It's a very, very brief book. But Paul uses the phrase good works six times in this book. In addition, he says that presbyters, that, that Titus is there to a point, must be lovers of good. He speaks of people who profess to be good, but their works are not good. He speaks of older women who teach what is good. To the younger women, he speaks of the goodness of God. There are a total of ten references to good works or goodness in this little book. Clearly, that was on Paul's mind as he wrote to Titus. Titus was sent to Crete, which was proverbial for its cultural uh, insanity. It was just a really bad place. Full of bribery and lies and theft and graft and corruption. And it was a uniquely unchristian culture. Violence. All sorts of things. And Paul seemed to know that if the gospel were to pe penetrate such a resistant and unethical and immoral culture, Christians needed to be living out their faith. In other words, not just talking about the truth, but living it out in terms of good deeds. But this passage, this text, is careful to put good works into a greater context so there's no mistake about where good works fit into the Christian life. So that's where we are in Titus chapter 2. And I want to look back at verse 11 to get going. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And by the way, the end of this passage, verse 14, ends in the word good works, right? But let's start at the beginning. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. There's no confusion where life begins as a Christian. It's with grace. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 24 says that all of us have sinned and keep on falling short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift of God's grace through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8 says, Here is God's love for us, and that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we think Paul goes on to say that someone might be willing to die for a good man, but, but Christ died for us even when we had no knowledge of him, when we didn't care about him, and when we were moving the other way. So let me just be clear. Grace is a full stop at the front door of the Christian life. It's like, check your ticket here, okay? Do you have a ticket? Remember there's a parable about the wedding feast where people have to get clothed to come into the wedding feast and somebody slips out without the clothing? And, and Jesus in, in the parable stops the whole thing and says, you don't have the right clothes on. Now, here the deal is, the clothes were being provided by the host. So it's no excuse. All the guy had to do was go put on the right clothes. The right clothes being that, that, that which was appropriate to the wedding. And Jesus' point in terms of salvation is, I'll give you the clothes. It, I, I'm the only one who can give you the clothes. You just got to put them on. Well, once you put them on, that, okay? So now you understand why I really haven't worn this today, okay? 
Because these, these represent the right clothes, the clothes that we have in Christ. Having then therefore come to the wedding feast in the household of God with grace at the front door. In other words, grace stops us at the door. And at some point, we have to realize in a real way that we are loved and forgiven through Jesus Christ, even though we absolutely do not deserve it. And for many of us, that has been a major crisis point in our life. I can tell you my story. Many of you here you say it's a major point of, of, of decision for you. Others, it's just sort of floated into your life because of the nature of your background. But each of us, hopefully, are, is our, has the story, if not some decisive point where there's no lack of clarity right now, that we are here because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen. And so having come into the wedding feast, the household of God, grace walks the rest of the way with us our whole life long. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have a status of peace. We are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We're standing in a field of grace. It's beautiful. It's just free. It's clean. And that's where we live our life out as followers of Jesus Christ. So back to Titus. The grace of God has appeared, giving salvation to all people. But now walking with us along the way, Paul says grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us why we can turn away from things that would destroy us. And it teaches us that we are not condemned but we are loved into a new life. And grace changes our hearts. It changes our desires as we come again and again and again to know the love and mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Christ, pretty much the answer to any question or struggle you have is that you are loved. That you are treated with mercy. And that you stand in the grace of God. Now, that doesn't mean it comes to you quickly or easily, but if you allow that to soak into your soul, you begin to be free of all the alternative craziness that you're struggling with. You just kind of let it go. It just doesn't hold anymore. Because we live with love, undeserved, free, and it breaks into our life like an ocean in its fullness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that transforms us. But what's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? What is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? It is eyes that you can imagine easily, if you think about it, looking at you with love. Because as he hung on the cross, he said, to those who have crucified him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if the love of God worked for them, the love of God works for you. So imagine the face of Jesus Christ and imagine always the eyes of love. Grace, mercy, and love transform us and retrain us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And as it goes and works in our life, we wait for the blessed hope, verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave us for himself to redeem us, to set us free from lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Kind of the end game is a life that makes a difference in the world for good. 
Now, I tried to come up with a better image than the one I'm about to give you. <laughs> but when I was thinking about it, I was writing a sermon, there's this image that came to mind. And that is a fuse that leads to a dynamite explosion. Now, that's probably not a great image, but you can come up with a better one. But you light the fuse of grace, mercy, and love in our lives, and it, it leads inevitably, like, just like, like a fuse, to an explosion of godliness, self-control, and good works. Okay? Just, it just, it just like a fuse blows things up. Like, this. like I said, you know, come up with a better form. Okay? <laughs> now, without the grace of God working in our life, we may spend an awful lot of our time trying to adjust a little package of dynamite, add to it, you know, tie it up better, put a bow on it. We got to fix the fuse, make sure it's straight, you know what I mean, back and forth. But it just sits there. We can tweak the fuse all we want to, we can add all the dynamite, but there is nothing that happens. It is the transformative power of the grace of God and mercy and love poured out that remakes our hearts and gives us a spiritual ability we never had before to do good works that actually bring glory to God and help people see who God is. You can do good without God's strength. You can do some practical good. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about good that points people to God, not to yourself. And apart from the grace of God, the good we do may be altruistic, but always comes back to look at how good we are. But the grace of God in Jesus Christ allows us to do good that genuinely is giving away that which is good to somebody else, whether we're recognized for it or not. It's that flame of grace that the rich young ruler missed. Basically, in this question and answer with Jesus, he came to the conclusion, he said, I've done all these good, moral, and ethical things. At least the ones in the last part of the Ten Commandments that have to do with how I treat people. But notice the question never comes up and he never responds to and mentions the first three commandments about worshiping God. It's a telling absence. He does ask about one more good work. The one work that would guarantee him eternal life and Jesus answers directly. You have an opportunity to make a decision, young man, to do the one thing that will accomplish that, opens the door for that, so to speak. Let go of the things that you love the most, that you think you have to have to define your life and give you peace and security. The things that you're proudest about, that you take the greatest consolation in. Open up your hands, let them drop, let go of your wealth, let it go, and do one thing. Follow me. Turn to me. The one work you can do to guarantee eternal life is no human work at all. There's no human work in that. It is simply responding to the one who is here saying, I'm here, will you receive? I'm here, will you open up your heart? Will you yield? Will you surrender? Jesus says at the front of the kingdom of God, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit, meaning empty-handed. We enact that every time we come to communion. And I hope we know what we mean. And we mean what we say. We are coming and we're saying we have nothing to bring to prove to God that we deserve to be loved. We're here simply to receive the fact that he's already loved us. That he already came to us. We didn't have to go to him, he came to us. Jesus came to the rich young ruler and said, all you need to do is let go of the other stuff and walk with me. But develop a relationship with me. And that man turned away sad. 
because that was the one thing he could not do. He could not become a true worshiper in church, in contrast to a church girl. My guess is that the rich young ruler had gone to the temple all the time. But he had never come to worship and trust God. He believed his wealth proved he was okay. And that was enough. And Jesus brought it head to a head in one action, one decision, let it go and follow me. So here's the marvelous reality of disciples of Jesus, okay? The, once we let go of good works and accomplishments as the means of justifying ourselves before God, once we receive the grace of God, the retraining in grace starts. And guess where it leads? We've already read it. It leads back to the good works. So the things that you want to do, you will be able to do on the other side of it. But you will do them for a totally different purpose and motivation. A path of good works is God's path for you. It's his program of fruitfulness and blessing for the world through you. So the question for the confidants and those being received, and really the question for all of us, goes back to Ephesians 2.10. You and God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. How has God created you to do good? And as I close, let me just mention a couple of things that I think would be helpful for you to think about. Look at the dark times in your life. That seems a little odd. But in those dark times those, is when you find out what your needs are, what God supplies for you are, what your longings are, what your hungers are. And in that point, you can begin to see the depths of your own soul. Because you're already made for good works. There's not something you have to make up. It's already built into you. So do you look back on your story and long for family? And now you've come into a family where you are loved as a member of the family. Well, maybe part of your good works is to provide family and be family for other people. Do you see my point? So your wounds, your pains, your, your, your darkness often will shape your future. But you can also look at your day moments of transcendence and, and joy. And do you consistently go out uh, into the mountains of Western North Carolina and walk through the vistas just for the pure joy of it? You know, is there something in that that gives you a clue to what you bring to the world? Or maybe your greatest joy, maybe the thing you love to do is to see your hands and be involved in the actual transformation of life from poverty to sustainability. Pay attention to those things. Pay attention to the way God has made you. Because he loves the way you are. He made you the way you are. And he is working with you as in the decisions that you make. And how do these things become your message of good works? How do these things indicate the work that you are here to do? What is your platform for your presence in the world? We do a confirmation in a few minutes. And Years ago, one of the first confirmations I did, there was this young woman there who said, uh, you know, I asked everybody, what do you want me to pray for you? And she said, well, you know, I'm a violin teacher. I am an instructor of violin, and I'm really good. She said, I'm really good at what I do. But, she said, Bishop Steve, I hate my students. You should laugh, okay? <laughs> I, I can't stand my students. They drive me nuts. So she said, I find that I'm really good at teaching people the mechanics of violins, but I never teach them the music. 
And she said, I would ask you to pray for me that I would love my students so they can learn the music, not just the notes. It's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Do you see the shift? So the structure of her life was she was a violin teacher. And that wasn't going to be different on the other side of her confirmation. But what may have been different on the other side of her confirmation is that she was able to communicate the love to students so that music was produced, not just notes. I think that's a pretty good illustration of I think what the Lord wants to do in each of our lives. Let him teach you and transform you to learn to play music, not just notes. And to teach others to play music, not just notes. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.